Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Tribletel from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Naples, Florida is Dr. Sean Nair. Uh, Dr. Nair is president of Nucleus, and today we're going to be talking about the global expansion of compliance programs. Uh, first, thank you for joining us today. And let me ask you my first question, which is how can compliance leaders be most effective when an organization is expanding globally? Uh, Adam, thank you for the um, invitation, um, resulting in my being present today. Um, how um, compliance leaders can be most effective when an organization is expanding globally um, by first um, making sure that they understand all the compliance requirements in a country. So typically, when you go into a foreign country, um, you have legal compliance, you have so corporate legal compliance, you have HR compliance, you have accounts compliance, you have corporation tax compliance, you have indirect taxes compliance, and depending on the country involved, you may also have withholding taxes compliance requirements. In wow. some countries, you also have additional wow. HR requirements. Now, if you go to an accountant, he'll tell you all about the corporate and tax compliances, but he'll say nothing about the legal and the HR. If you go to a law firm, they'll tell you all about the legal, but they might or might not tell you about the HR, and they certainly won't tell you about the accounts. So it's really important um, that you actually set up a detailed compliance calendar that is appropriate to the year end of your business that lists every single compliance requirement that you have to have and has on the side potential other compliances. Like, for example, in some countries, a business license might need to be renewed, but it only needs to be renewed every four years, not every year. So you have on the side these additional compliances. So, But having a compliance calendar that is comprehensive, um, relevant to your year end, and covering all of the disciplines um, from which compliance filings have to be made is something that um, is absolutely critical. So when I, just to illustrate a point, if you have a German subsidiary and you are funding it, so it's a German cost center, in addition to all these normal compliances, you also have to make an additional filing called a Z4 filing to the Bundesbank once a, once a year. And if you don't do that, there are significant penalties. Um, again, nobody will tell you about this um, unless they're in this business helping companies do compliance multidisciplinarily. Um, because that Z Z4 filing, in, in the UK we call it a Z4 filing, um, is basically not a legal filing, not an HR filing, not a tax filing, not an accounts filing, but it's a financial reporting requirement on top of the annual ultimate beneficial owner filing requirement that sits specific to Germany when a German company is not self-funding itself through customer receipts, but is a cost center being funded by monies coming from another country. It's an anti-terrorism, anti-money laundering um, related filing requirement that is specific to Germany. But I give you that as an example. Well, and it's a great example, and it leads into a follow-up question I have is, is you know, it's obvious there's lots of little tripwires out there. Where do companies typically make compliance mistakes? Um, they, generally speaking, the main area, risk areas for mistakes or for um, trip-ups that lead to investigations and audits, um, transfer pricing is one big area where um, 
you know, book, tax authorities, you're, you're, you're moving funds from country A to country B, and tax authorities in both countries want to maximize their tax take, so, and you're pig in the middle. So having robust transfer pricing documentation that's appropriate to the scale and complexity of your business is very important, and is a risk area. Um, other than that area, the other compliance mistakes that companies can make is not being aware of a off-the-scene filing like this Z4 in Germany. In India, there is something called a prevention of sexual harassment filing, a POSH filing, which is an HR filing, um, which no tax firm or law firm probably will tell you about. A corporate law firm won't tell you about it. An employment law firm might. Um, so it's important to know what all your filings are and to research the area thoroughly by talking to multiple providers from different disciplines and preparing a compliance calendar. Well, it, you, you've really made the case that there's just so much to look at, which sort of leads into a question of what is the threshold, in your opinion, of when an organization needs a full-time compliance presence in its international operations to sort of oversee all these things and uh, versus when is headquarters oversight enough? Yeah, uh, I, I think the kind of uh, inflection point usually is when the business, the international business has it, it achieved a certain de minimis level of maturity that it's now actually a standalone business in its own right. So when you have significant customer revenues and there are very good reasons for booking these revenues in foreign countries, because let's say your board wants to minimize the overall corporate tax burden of the business and is happy in those circumstances to have some of the business's reserves in foreign countries. Um, it's in situations like that when um, you will then um, look to internalize a, your GNA function. Um, and I think typically that is, when you, that is when that threshold arises, that inflection point arises, um, when the foreign business is sufficiently mature, making enough revenues that it's actually a standalone business. Well, that's what's good about that is it's a good threshold that's easy to have a sense of. Now, there's always a tug of war between yeah. what parts of the compliance program are global and what needs to be localized. Where do you think compliance programs should take the effort to localize what they're doing? What should be localized are really two things. Um, policies that are dependent on the local culture that's number one. And number two, um, policies where the local regulations are different from one country to another in fairly radical ways. So uh, on the first item, I would say things like um, uh, having a um, anti-bribery policy. Having a global anti-bribery policy is fine, but then it needs to be translated into the do's and don'ts in a particular country as to where, um, in particular, where a gift can be considered to be a bribe and where it cannot considered to be a bribe, um, where giving a gift or receiving a gift is controlled or not controlled. Um, the, uh, having said that, that there are certain areas like data privacy where the um, rules and regulations vary from region to region or from country to country. And it is not possible other than a very generally worded policy to have something generic it will have to be translated into very specific do's and don'ts 
and operational procedures that are country specific. So finally, let me ask one last question. Are, are there any things that you think never should be localized? Yeah, there should be no compromise on the company's um, overall culture, ethics, um, its professionalism, uh, its uh, the the requirement to be honest in and ethical in dealing with business. There can be no compromise on any of that anywhere in the world. But other than that. I think it, I think everything else um, does need to be looked at on a country-specific basis and customized. Well, thanks for sharing your insights on this constantly challenging issue for organizations as they expand around the world. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletub from SCC and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.